Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson, the talk show that makes the connections between research, policies, and practitioners that are too often missing from the American education system. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Good day, listeners. Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. I am your host, Jonathan Jefferson. You can learn more about me at my show page on TalkZone.com. Today, we are going to have a school health update at the top of the hour. Health issues have dominated the news in recent weeks. There is much talk about Ebola, a virus to which there is apparently no cure, enterovirus D68, which has affected children from coast to coast, and the start of flu season. My first guest is on the front lines when it comes to children's health. Nurse Sylvia Kalich, a New York State registered professional nurse with nearly 20 years of experience. She is currently employed as a school nurse supervisor for a large Long Island school district. In addition to having worked as a school nurse, she has also been a college campus nurse, nurse consultant, U.S. Department of Labor, nurse intervention program covering the states of New York, New Jersey, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. Sylvia, thank you so much for returning as a guest to, to provide us with this school health update. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I greatly appreciate it. Um, well, let's start with what seemed a few weeks ago to be impossible. Uh, as impossible as this may appear, are school nurses ready for a child exhibiting symptoms of Ebola? Well, a few weeks ago, no, but now we are. So um, basically, um, we we are concerned with um, children who have exhibit fever of greater than 101.5, severe headache, muscle pain, weakness, diarrhea, vomiting, abdominal pain, uh, or unexplained bleeding or bruising. Um, Those are the symptoms we really have to watch out for people who have been exposed to Ebola. Okay. Now, have there been any guidelines sent to schools on how to respond in such an emergency? Yes. Um, the New York State Department of Education did send some guidelines for school nurses just to make us aware of what the different symptoms are and what to look for and, and how to respond and how to report it to the Department of Health or the proper state agencies. Okay. Well, my curiosity is if a child uh, right now uh, walked into your office uh, exhibiting these symptoms. Um, who is in the office? Um, what happens with other children that are in the office? I mean, exactly what, paint the picture for us, what that scenario would look like. Well, you know, at any given time, you know that there could be one or no students or many students in the health office. So if any student comes in with any type of communicable disease that we suspect that is communicable, such as Ebola or chickenpox or fifth disease, by the clinical manifestations, what they're exhibiting outside the body, our job is to immediately isolate them from the other children and staff that may be present in the office at that time and take the proper measures to assess them first and then intervene by calling a parent to pick them up and seek advanced medical care. So that could be, it's true with Ebola or any other type of virus or communicable disease that may the child may be exhibiting at the time. See, I find that interesting because even uh, quote-unquote highly trained uh, professionals who just dealt with this in Dallas have come down with the virus. The second person, I believe, was diagnosed um, today. And so when I hear that, my thinking is, would, would, would the next step really be 
to call a parent if we suspect that the child may have something as advanced as Ebola? I mean, or would it, or, or is there a CDC number to call or it just seems like a higher level of, of, uh, of isolation and, and equipment and what have you is needed if, if this. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say if it's suspected that it might be Ebola. Right. Well, we, as you know, we're not allowed to diagnose as nurses. So if we suspect mm-hmm. the case, we have to take reasonable measures to get the child to advance medical care. So the parent would be the first person to contact because they've already been exposed to that child. It's mm. not like the parent is reuniting with the child after a long absence. The parent has already been in contact with the child. So we would need to isolate and take the proper precautions. We can't create unnecessary panic, so we don't want to start sending alarm bells on something that may not be medically diagnosed. As far as workers becoming infected with Ebola virus, there has to be a port of exit as well as a port of entry. And that's true with any communicable disease. In other words, you know, the person treating a patient that's ill that patient would have to have some type of secretions coming out of their body, whether it be mucal, um, nasal, any type of the mucous membranes or blood. And then that worker would have to have a port of entry for that to be transmitted to them. So if they had a cut on their arm and they don't have the proper protective equipment on, then they would be at risk. Okay. Now, does, does that it- make sense? It, it does, but um, does it take you by surprise though when you hear about, um, you know, professionals that are you know dealing with this coming down with it so frequently? Not only does it happen in Africa where we we suspect that the level of uh, equipment and uh, medical training might not be up to par with the U.S., but when you see it happening in the U.S., it just gives you cause for pause because we assume that we have the best medical advancements in care and, and information in the world. And when we see, like, the second person coming down with it today, it just, I know we don't want to create a panic, mm-hmm. but it makes you think twice about what, what we truly. truly know. And, you know, I mean, we're talking about two cases, and, you know, we do have one of the most advanced healthcare systems in the U.S., but we're also talking about human error. So if somebody is careless or not take the proper precautions in treating someone, with this type of virus, you know, human error, you know, there's your method of transmission. Okay. So it goes back to the individual and your ethic and your, and your, and taking the proper steps and not taking shortcuts when you're treating somebody. Absolutely. Like, yeah, like anything think... else. Like any, and I'm not saying that that's how they got it. I don't want to, you know, suggest that, mm-hmm. but obviously there was, there was transmission. So it does beg the question on how that happened. Yes, and I know they're still investigating that, so it's really a case of stay tuned. Don't panic, but stay tuned. Um, right. Now let's let's move on to something that is 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 much more likely to occur, or, or or something more likely that schools will come across. In fact, I believe a school in uh, the east end of Long Island, Ele- uh, Southampton Elementary School, um, closed down yesterday because a child came down with uh, enterovirus, but they said it was not enterovirus D sixty eight. Can you? Take the layperson from the beginning, and what is enterovirus, and where does these letters and numbers come that are attached to it? Enterovirus is really um, a respiratory illness that affects mostly children, not necessarily adults, but doesn't mean adults cannot get it. So enterovirus is, is just a virus. It's exactly what that is. But that one is transmitted, and it's more 
the population that's more vulnerable to enterovirus D68 are children who have respiratory conditions such as asthma or your weakened immune system. So those children would be at higher risk, not to say that a child that who does not suffer from any type of respiratory illnesses to begin with may not get it, but it's they're more, the more vulnerable population out there. And basically, it's almost like the same precautions that you would take with, with not catching the flu, is to avoid close contact with sick people, wash your hands often with soap and water, not necessarily your hand sanitizers, but if you have nothing else, hand sanitizers will do. It's better than nothing. Covering your cough and sneezes, um, you know, into the proper handkerchief, although we don't see many of those anymore, but tissues and into your elbow rather than to have it spread out like an aerosol mm-hmm. can. Avoid touching your face with unwashed hands. Again, port of ex- ex- exit and port of entry. You don't want to contaminate any of the mucous membranes. A lot of us throughout the day, you know, we're not always washing our hands and we go and if we touch an infected person and then we touch our eyes, we rub our eyes, touch our nose, our mouth, whatever have you, there's your port of entry. So hand washing is very important. Cleaning and disinfecting surfaces and staying home when you're ill. And I think that's like the biggest one to accomplish because a lot of parents work. And so it's not always predictable if my child, is he really sick or is he not? Do I keep him home? Do I not keep them home? And you send them to school with the beginning of the symptoms and not knowing that this may be bigger than what you thought. And now this person has been around other children and staff and may contaminate them as well. Yeah. Now what, now what I found a little confusing for me, uh, being, being a layperson, not a, uh, health services uh, professional, is that the school that was closed, and this is just local recent news, the school that closed down stated that it was enterovirus, but they also stated that it was not D68. So what uh, enterovirus are they referring to? There are many different strains that cause enterovirus, and 68 just labels the most common trait that we have that we're seeing right now, but there's different strains, and that's all it really refers to. So do you think because it's it, almost like it's almost like fifth disease. If you ever heard of fifth disease, fifth disease is a viral condition. It's manifested with a rash that comes out like a slap cheek appearance on someone's face, although it could come out as a rash on any part of the body. They didn't have a name for it. So what did they call it? They called it fifth disease because they had no other name for it. So that's basically it just helps identify the particular strain that's causing that particular antivirus. That's all it really is. It's an identifying factor. Okay. Now, do you, in your opinion, like flu, uh, yeah, yeah, and the like flu, the flu is actually much more common. Flu, we had the bird flu, we had the swine flu, we have the regular flu. So it, it 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 all depends on what they're trying to identify at the time. Okay. And before we get into more, uh, and that's a good example there that the the different variations you just stated. But before we get more into the flu, um. In your opinion, is it an overreaction if someone has what appears to be common, an enterovirus, to close an entire school for disinfecting? Do you think that's an overreaction? Um, I think it's well. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to minimize what they're doing, and I don't want to magnify what they're doing. But I think that they're taking. They're trying to take reasonable steps. I think that you know an overnight cleaning would have been sufficient because it doesn't survive on inanimate surfaces very long, but 
you can never err on the side of caution, and I and I respect that they're trying to err on the side of caution, and they're trying to make sure that it's safe for students and staff to return back into the building, because okay. you never know exactly where the contagion was to begin with. Mm-hmm. Thanks. That's that's a good response. Now, with regards to uh, this will be last question before before we take a short break. Um, with regards to enterovirus D sixty eight. Is that the same virus that has been causing, mysteriously causing, um, paralysis in, in children out west? Um, I believe that well, that is the case. Yes, um, there there seems to be um, a connection to it, although there there's not a definitive answer on that yet. I think they're still on the exploratory um, stages of that. Okay, um, and I, I seem- and I think. I think again, like anything else, it depends on how how weak the immune system is at time of exposure. Because like some people will catch the flu, other people won't, and then people wonder, well, gee, why did you not, or why did you? And it depends on how weak your immune system is. Anything could attack the immune system. Stress could have an effect on the immune system. Mm-hmm. So if we're under undue stress, the our susceptibility to communicable diseases is higher. Not necessarily the flu and not necessarily D68, but any type of um, condition, if okay. you will. Okay. And that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of, uh, variables. It just seems lately, and it might just be because of the new news exposure, it just seems lately that, uh, Mother Nature's, uh, uh, not too happy. <laughs> so, um, at this time, we need to take a short break, but stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Educate on Talk Zone. Here's Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion on school health update with our special guest, Nurse Sylvia Kalich. Um, Nurse Kalich, we began discussing uh, the flu. Now, as much as Ebola is in the news and enterovirus D68 is in the news, um, isn't it true that the flu proves annually to be the most deadly uh, virus that people get? Yes, especially, again, in people with immunocompromised systems, such as people with asthma are more vulnerable. People who are undergoing chemotherapy, for instance, or radiation therapy, because their immune systems are already at a weakened state. So mm-hmm. they they have more susceptibility. At one time, a couple of years ago, there was a shortage on the flu vaccine, and during that shortage period until they were able to manufacture more, only the people who had a high susceptible rate to it were offered the vaccine first as a priority versus people who had normal immune systems. So they were saying that children who had asthma should be the first ones to get the vaccine, the flu vaccine, versus children who didn't have the asthma, for instance, as a pre-existing medical condition. Now, now, with regards to the flu vaccine, um, usually they give a range of if you're younger than such an age or if you're older than such an age, in addition to the um, the compromised immune systems. Uh, what are those age ranges usually? What do you mean with the age? I'm sorry, I misunderstood the question. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I probably didn't. vulnerability? Well, usually when they say certain people should absolutely get the uh, flu vaccine, not only those who you mentioned who might have compromised immune systems, but usually children below a certain age and adults above a certain age. Uh, are you familiar with that range? 
Yes. Is it older, um, older children, six? Children six months and older. Um, it should not be given to children under the age of six months, preferably. And um, your senior citizen population, 65 and older, are your most vulnerable because of the age and the immune okay. system. So, okay. Yes. So our actually, so our immune systems actually weaken as we get older. So all of those, the the, the uh, and I'm just asking uh, or thinking out loud, but the vaccinations we get and the immunities we acquire during life actually fade in our older age. Um, not necessarily. Depends on what vaccine you're talking about. Some have a, li- a longer lifespan, if you will, for lack of better words. Like, um, like give you an example. Um, you could get the varicella vaccine as the perfect example. It will lessen the severity of the case of the chickenpox that you may get, but it will not guarantee that you will not get, ex- you know, the disease. It just lessens the severity of it. So okay. when the chickenpox vaccine was first introduced back in 1993, I believe, um, that was the consensus. Now they have, they're vaccinating children with a second dose after the age of five. They're requiring okay. a second dose of the varicella to give you that added protection. So some vaccines, yes, and some vaccines, no. Blood titers could determine what your immunity is, serologically speaking. And um, so anybody could submit to a blood titer, and every single vaccine will give you that blood titer except for Tdaps. Tdaps tetanus shots are not measurable in um, serological values. Okay. And is there a danger in having a vaccine too often, for example, the... Uh... Oh, sure. Okay. Sorry. Okay. So, uh, and any va- too much of anything is no good. Un- being okay. under-vaccinated is no good either. But the flu vaccine, we have to remember, the flu vaccine that's created every year is based on the strains that we have seen in the past year or two. So if any new strain appears, let's say this year, your flu vaccine that you got this year was protecting you against the previous strains, not necessarily future strains. So okay. it will offer you some type of protection, but it's not complete protection because some people will say, well, gee, I got the flu vaccine and I still got the flu. It's because the strain that you were protected against was not in the, available in that vaccine. Okay. Now, when exactly is flu season? Flu season, it starts as early as um, late September. Um, October is prime time. So people should start looking into becoming vaccinated now, if at least unless it's contraindicated with their medical history and or current conditions. Like, for instance, if you have a cold or if you're fighting a virus, you should not be vaccinated. You need to be well before you become vaccinated. And only your doctor could determine that, of course, um, based on your interview with your doctor. And, um, and, it, and it's the one vaccine that I do believe in as far as prevention is concerned. Okay. Now, for people who are unable to have the vaccine, there is a nasal spray that's available. It's called a flu mist that's available to be um, administered through your nasal nostrils versus injection. Now, now, what would cause someone not to be able to have the injection? Um, people who are getting chemotherapy. Okay. Um, you don't want it to go through the bloodstream, so you go through the nasal passages to still offer them the same protection. Okay. Hmm. So now, is there a reason flu season begins in September, October? Is it has anything to do with the seasons, or has more to do with the fact that people are staying inside more and and, and coming together more, especially with regards to school? Um, I'm not sure. It's like anything else. Chickenpox is more prominent during spring, 
Sometimes you have it in the winter months, but it's more prominent during spring and summer than winter. It's just, I guess, the pattern that it has exhibited on its appearance. I'm not sure, to be honest. And you would give the same advice with regards to avoiding the flu as any virus, right, which is frequent hand washing, um, I guess not sharing utensils. I mean, it's just pretty much common I should I shouldn't say common sense, but I guess it is common sense because it's often mentioned. Um, pretty much being uh, hygienic and sanitary. Am I correct? Correct. Correct. The common exposures, you know, the common precautions that you would take with any other virus, like the enterovirus D68. It's the same precautions that you would take with somebody who has the flu. You know, avoid close contact with sick people. Wash your hands often with soap and water. Cover your coughs and sneezes. Clean and disinfect surfaces. Stay home when you're sick. Avoid touching your face with unwashed hands. And the Ebola virus is no different. We always discourage people from sharing utensils or eating off the same plate or drinking out of each other's cups. I know that when you're home and you're in the comfort of your home and you have your children, you know, you might give them a sip of your cup or you might take a sip of theirs, but it's best to not get into that practice and and stay out of that habit or break that habit because of all the different illnesses that we're seeing that are coming about. And that's that's great advice because I often see uh, uh, people, especially with infants, where the infant drops their, um, I forget what the item is they put in their mouth, a pacifier, a pacifier, <laughs> or, you know, and on the ground, and then the parent cleans the pacifier using their own saliva, and they'll put it in their own mouth to clean it, and then put it right in the baby's mouth, thinking that that's actually a good way to, uh, <laughs> yeah, to, big to clean no-no. the. Yeah, that's a big no-no. But I, I often see that, so I'm glad you mentioned the fact that when people are in comfort of their home, they assume that it's a, a, a safe, clean environment. You're not going to get anything. In fact, that's probably where most sicknesses uh, spread. Correct. I mean, the home is, we're not saying that the home is not safe and clean. We're just saying that, you know, we are outside, we come back inside, and we do bring with us, or we may have the potential to bring with us certain illnesses into the home. So it's not a reflection of um, house cleaning or hygiene. It's just a reflection of that we need to stop and think and how our disease is spread, and we need to stop and think, and let's start practicing at home not doing these things. And it's a good example for the children because then the children will know, well, no, we don't share plates and we don't share forks and we don't share straws and so forth down the line, especially in your pre-K centers or your nursery centers. You know, they see, oh, well, mommy shares, you know, my straw. Let me share with my friend. Mm-hmm. Kids are very quick to emulate what we do. Absolutely. And, in fact, I have a concern with uh, sports teams because oftentimes they are, um, even though they're squirt bottles, they they often run into a huddle and they 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 grab this whatever squirt bottle is handed to them and and oftentimes when one person on a team gets gets a cold the rest of the team or <laughs> half the team is going to be sick within the next week or two and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that they're in close quarters and they sh- and they tend to share these water bottles I always say bring your own and, and label it you know but um, that's one concern I have with ath- athletics. I agree. And and not just label the bottles because you could accidentally pick one up and if you don't have your contact lenses in or your glasses or you're having visual difficulties, you might think, oh, that was my bottle. Now I drank out of somebody else's bottle. But I would take it a step further and have them put it in their bag so that they have to be forced to go into their bag to take it out before they drink from it. So yes, yes. the bag would add an, an just an additional, you know, semi-layer protection there of um, avoidance of transmission of any type of illnesses. 
Mm, that's, that's good advice. Now, thinking globally, uh, are there any other health concerns you would like to share with uh, my listeners? Um, well, right now, I think those are the three biggest ones that we really need to be concerned with. But, of course, you know, you have your um, chickenpox um, viruses that are out there that has been pretty much contained because most children need to be vaccinated. But, Mike, one of the concerns that I do have, currently speaking, is the parents who are opting for religious um, re- religious reasons not to vaccinate their children. And that is, a, that is a concern. That's a trend that we're starting to see in the school system where more and more parents are opting to exercise their religious beliefs. And while we respect religious beliefs and we don't want to ever go against anyone's religious beliefs, Really, they need to take into consideration that their child is more susceptible than any other to these different illnesses that are around. Absolutely. So that's, that's, that's just that, a concern for parents is to kind of give it a little bit more careful thought before they exercise that option. That's very good advice. We have been speaking with Nurse Sylvia Kalich, Nurse Supervisor for Long Island School District. To learn more about Sylvia, visit her website at www.asknursesylvia.com. That's asknursesylvia.com. Sylvia, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me as your guest. Stay tuned because our next guest is an attorney who donates her time with the Safe Passage Project. 